You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. We're in the second week of Advent, leading into the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, And this weekend, as well as next weekend, we are going to be zooming in on the person of Mary. Next week, the title of the sermon is Mary's Revolutionary Anthem. We're going to be talking about the Magnificat, the Mary's song, and at the end of, uh, in the middle of chapter one of Luke. But today, the title of the sermon is Let It Be. When I find myself in times of trouble, <laughs> Mother Mary comes to me whispering words of wisdom let it be you know for 500 years or so we protestants we've been allergic to mary and certainly there were some abuses that needed to be corrected no doubt but we need to get over our allergy and we need to simply meet mary as she's presented to us in the new testament and learn what we should from this woman because i really believe mary is truly one of the most remarkable human beings who's ever lived i mean she uniquely is the person through whom god enters his own creation and joins humanity that's mind-boggling and uh, so mary is connected to the greatest intimately connected to the greatest mystery of all the mystery of the incarnation God, second person of the Trinity, becoming human, just as human as you are. Let's look at our text. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 is where we'll begin. We talked about Elizabeth last week. Now let's look at where Luke picks this up. When Elizabeth was six months pregnant, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a city in Galilee, to a virgin who was engaged to a man named Joseph a descendant of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. When the angel came to her, he said, Rejoice, favored one. The Lord is with you. She was confused by these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said, Don't be afraid, Mary. God is honoring you. Look, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, his father. He will rule over Jacob's house forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Then Mary said to the angel, How will this happen, since I haven't had sexual relations with a man? The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one who is to be born will be holy. He will be called God's Son. Look, even in her old age, your relative Elizabeth has conceived a son. The woman who was labeled unable to conceive is now six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. Then Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be with me, just as you have said. Then the angel left her. Amen. So the story of Jesus begins in earnest with the Annunciation, as it's called. 
this angelic announcement that this virgin girl will give birth to a son named Jesus who will be called the Son of God. And the virgin's name is Mary, but to be more precise, it's actually Miriam. She's named after Moses' sister, Miriam. Remember, Mary's a Jewish girl, and she has the most common name for a Jewish girl in the first century, Miriam. We'll talk more about that next week and the connection between the two, those two women. But Mary, we'll just call her Mary today. Uh, Mary was also quite young, like no older than 13 or 14 years old, which is especially mind-boggling to me as the father of a 14-year-old girl. She's also married, but they did marriage differently in that culture than we do today. You know, in our day and age, there's engagement. And then at some point, you set a date and you get married and you sign your certificate. And from that point, you're legally bound to one another. And unfortunately, a lot of translations still use engagement language, including the one we just read. It talks about Mary and Joseph being engaged or Joseph being her fiance. This is misleading. They're, they're trying to make it accessible to you, but this is not actually how it worked. They didn't have engagement. They had betrothal. And it was basically the first stage of marriage. You, you became pledged to your spouse. Joseph and Mary were pledged, betrothed to one another. And they were, from that point, legally considered husband and wife, but they haven't yet come together yet physically. They haven't consummated the marriage. They're not living together yet. They're living apart, but they are still considered legally husband and wife. This is why later in the story, Joseph will consider divorcing Mary once he finds out that she's pregnant. But of course, he doesn't go through with it. We'll get there in due time. So she's a young girl named after Moses' sister. She's married. She's also poor. She's a very poor peasant. We know this to be true because later in the story, after Jesus is born, on the eighth day, Joseph and Mary bring him to the temple complex where they're going to offer him for dedication, but they cannot afford to make the normal sacrifice, which was a lamb. Instead, they offer two turtle doves, two pigeons, which was a concession for those who were on the lowest rungs of poverty. And so here's this Jewish girl in her early teens, Miriam or Mary, she's betrothed, she's poor, she's a virgin, she hasn't yet begun to live with her husband. And all of this is taking place in Nazareth. Now today, Nazareth is kind of a sprawling city, but back then it was a tiny little village of maybe a couple hundred people, not even on a map. You could live in Israel your whole life and not even know where Nazareth was. It was way out on the backside of Galilee up in the northern part of Israel. The significance of Nazareth is its insignificance. I mean, think about the juxtaposition. On the opposite extreme, you have someone like Caesar Augustus living in his lavish palace in Rome. You have King Herod the Great living in perhaps his even more lavish palace in Jerusalem. You have the Jewish high priest. You have the... Uh, Upper crust Hasmoneans living in the upper part of Jerusalem. These are wealthy, powerful, prestigious families. And I think the common assumption that most people of that day would have had is that if God's going to come down and do something among people, He's going to do it amongst those folks. 
But instead, the angel Gabriel comes to this poor house with its dirt floor and thatched roof in the backwater of Galilee uh, to tell a 14-year-old girl that she has found favor with God and will soon give birth to Jesus' Messiah and that her son will be called the Son of God. Um, Now, you and I, we're at a disadvantage in terms of how we hear that. We hear that differently than how Mary would have heard that in her day and age. Um, Because when we hear terms like Son of God, it's now infused with all kinds of theological implications. But back when this event was taking place, which was probably around 6 or 7 B.C., because our calendar's off, some mistakes were made whenever the calendar was put in place, Jesus was probably born 5 or 6 B.C. But during the time when all of this was occurring, it may surprise you to know that uh, the term Son of God was in common usage. Now, it wasn't applied to very many people. In fact, like only one person at the time. Uh, But it wasn't a rare term. And the term Son of God actually had much more of a political meaning than it did theological implications. The term Son of God in that day and age simply meant divine right to rulership. The person we are going to refer to as Son of God is the one who has the divine right to rule. That's what it meant. Now, later on, as Christianity grows and develops, we we begin to acquire a much fuller, broader meaning of this term. But you have to understand the term and its original political implications. It simply means divine right to rule. And if you and I are going to understand the Jesus story well, we have to understand Jesus was not born in a vacuum. He was born as a subject underneath the Roman Empire. And he was born during the booming economy of the Pax Romana. All of the Roman coinage of that day, and remember, coinage was the only currency. They didn't have uh, debit cards and Bitcoin and all that kind of stuff. Your only form of currency was coins. And everybody would have had coinage on them at any given moment. And every one of these Roman coins is stamped with the image of the Roman emperor with the inscription, Caesar Augustus, Son of God. And here's what the point was. Here's what they wanted you to know. What really matters is the economy. And Caesar Augustus has given us this booming economy. Therefore, he has the divine right to rule. Therefore, we will confer upon him the title God's Son. That's how that worked. But now, an angel is telling a poor peasant girl that the true Son of God is going to enter the world through her womb, through her life, and that her son will be given a throne, an eternal kingdom, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end." This is all Christmas language, and I think sometimes we sing our sweet Christmas carols that I love so much, and we just cloak all of this language with sweetness and good vibes and nice feelings, and we don't always hear these terms in all of their political subversiveness. That from the moment this child is born, he's going to cause all kinds of trouble. This is why... 
I have so many problems with all of these Jesus movies and Jesus films that have been produced over the decades. Um, by the way, I am watching The Chosen, and I'm four episodes in, and I like it so far, so you can leave me alone about The Chosen, okay? <laughs> Um, but here's what I don't like about a lot of these Jesus movies and Jesus films is that, well, I mean, for one thing, it's, it's a number of things, but it, one, of the, one of the things is they just don't, don't, they don't ever seem to do an adequate job of showing us why, after all, this man was killed. Why did people want him dead? Like, if you've never seen the story or heard the story before, you start watching these movies and, and you see this guy with blonde hair and blue eyes, which is its own issue, but but he looks like he just walked out of a beauty shop every time, you know? And he just walks around, and he's got this otherworldly look about him, and he's, all, he's just nice, and he's kind, and he's so, he just smiles, and, and he does all these nice things for people, and he's healing people, and he's feeding people, and he's delivering people. And man, he's just, he's just the greatest guy in the world. And then it just kind of somewhere along the line, it takes a strange turn, and people all of a sudden start torturing him and killing him. And they never really explain why so many people were interested in conspiring together to put an end to him. And I'm going to tell you why, explicitly. All of these Christmas titles that we sing every year, Lord, Son of God, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, Savior of the World, do you realize every last one of these titles were imperial titles that belonged to one man, Caesar? So when the angel Gabriel shows up in this little hovel with the dirt, floor and the thatched roof to this little girl. All of these terms, Lord, Son of God, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, Savior of the world, they were all in circulation. And everybody knows when you use one of these terms, you're talking about Caesar, Caesar Augustus. But the angel is saying that this virgin's going to bear a child and he's going to claim all those titles for himself. And this is why Jesus was in trouble with the dominant superpower from day one of his life. This is why King Herod the Great wants to put a death sentence on this baby as soon as he hears about it. The Christmas story is not just all about angels appearing to shepherds keeping watch over their flocks at night. It's also about Herod and his death squad putting babies to death in Bethlehem. See, there's an edge. There is a, a dark side to the Christmas story that we don't write carols about. But it's an essential part of the story that the dominant powers and principalities of the age, they don't want to go quietly in the night. They want to cling to darkness. They want the darkness to remain. But uh, as we're told in the opening prologue of John's Gospel, the darkness, we're told, cannot overcome the light. And so this angel comes to the Nowheresville of Nazareth and announces to this girl, his first word is rejoice. Rejoice, O favored one. As we talked about last week, all of the promises are now coming true in your son. God's promises to Israel that all nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham's seed and that a true son of David will sit on the throne and rule over the nations. It's coming true in this boy that's going to be conceived in your womb. And, and Mary's initial response is, how can this be? I'm a virgin. I haven't even been with my husband yet. How can this be? And the, and the answer comes quickly. The Holy Spirit. The angel says the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. 
Therefore, that baby which is conceived in you shall be called the Son of God. That's why we confess in the ancient creeds he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. But now comes the moment, the moment of truth, the moment that everything hinges upon. What will Mary say to all of this? What will be her response? You know, St. Augustine, 1600 years ago, he preached a famous sermon, and he was very dramatic about it. And he portrayed this moment as if all of heaven, all of the legions of heaven, are sitting on the edge of their seats, holding their breath, waiting to hear what this 14-year-old girl is going to say. And Mary speaks and she says, Behold, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be unto me according to your word. Exhale. (laughs) And now the story can move forward because Mary says yes. And as we'll see next week, Elizabeth speaks over Mary and says, you are blessed among women because Mary says yes to the assignment of the Lord. But here's where I really want to take you this evening and and this is what I want to meditate on with you. Saying yes to God does not mean that Mary's life is going to get any easier. You know, we have grown accustomed to thinking very shallowly about these things in our cheap consumeristic age that perverts sometimes our conception of what Christianity is. We sometimes believe that to say yes is to be blessed. Okay. But Mary saying yes to God doesn't mean her life's going to get easy. In fact, it's going to be just the opposite. Mary saying yes to God's assignment for her life means that her life from this point on, it's going to be etched in sorrow. I mean, think about it. Like, as soon as she says, let it be to me according to your word, what's the very next sentence? Then the angel left her. If I'm Mary, I'm like, wait a second. Can you go to everybody else in my town and tell them what you just told me? Nobody in her town is going to see that angel. What they are going to see is a womb that's getting larger and larger. And they're going to tell themselves, well, this girl hadn't had her wedding celebration yet. So saying yes to God for this 14-year-old who's just entered into her teens... It means she's going to live the rest of her teenage life and young adult life, the rest of her life, under the shadow of implied scandal. That's going to follow her the rest of her life. Even her own husband, Joseph, will assume the worst at first and plan to divorce her quietly until he has his own encounter with an angel in a dream. But nobody else sees the angel. Aside from that, within just a few weeks of her newborn son's birth, King Herod the Great inexplicably somehow finds out about this baby that's been born in an animal feeding trough in a cave in little old Bethlehem. Like, who cares? But Herod perceives correctly this baby's a threat to him. And he puts out a death warrant as soon as he hears about it. He lives five miles away from Bethlehem. Which means when when Joseph and Mary find out about that, again supernaturally, they don't have time to pack. They don't have time to prepare they got to run for their life under the cover of darkness. They flee their country. They go to Egypt. They don't know the language. 
They don't know the culture. They don't know anybody. They don't know how they're going to make a living. They don't know where they're going to live. They don't know how long they're going to be there. Are we ever going to get to see our family again? You understand, like, this is a very different birth experience. She didn't get to decorate her nursery, you know? She's got to run for her life from a very, very powerful dictator who wants to kill her baby. And I just wonder, too, like, I'm, I'm purely in the realm of conjecture here, but I wonder if Mary, as she continued to live her life, I wonder if she perhaps carried some guilt over all of those babies that were killed in Bethlehem. You know, I, 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 she's a human being, and I just, I'm trying to enter into the story, and I would imagine, you know, she's wrestling with that from time to time in her life. Here she and her husband were warned about what was coming, so they were able to flee, and their baby was saved, but there were some babies in Bethlehem who were not saved, and they were killed. And I could just imagine, perhaps, throughout her life, struggling with that survivor's guilt. I don't know. But I certainly know that she was there at the cross 33 years later when she watched her firstborn son tortured and killed. See, never forget, whatever else Jesus was to Mary, first and foremost, Jesus was her firstborn son, which makes her incredibly unique. Was Jesus Mary's Lord and Savior? Absolutely. But he was also her firstborn son. And she watched her firstborn son tortured and killed, helpless to do anything about it. So we got to remember that this is a woman who, for whom saying yes to God, it, she's going to, and to some degree she knows it, to another degree she doesn't, but she's going to live a life etched in sorrow. Isn't that what Simeon prophesied over her, remember? When Jesus was dedicated Eight-day-old Jesus in a, temple, in a temple complex, this bizarre old man takes the child from their arms, <laughs> holds the baby up and just begins to prophesy over the baby. This baby's the consolation of Israel. But then he turns to the mother at the very end and he says, a, soul, a sword shall pierce your own soul too. We, the days we live in are very shallow and very cheap. And I'm just saying we in general. I'm not talking about you in particular. I'm just saying in the broad world of Christianity here in America, um, we, we have such a cheap, shallow conception of Christianity that if you say yes to Jesus, you will be on the fast track to endless happiness. Say yes to Jesus and everything's going to turn out all right. Everything's going to go well in your life. I'm just going to be honest with you and tell you, like, what if it doesn't? You know, saying yes to Jesus will get you out of certain trouble, but it'll also put you in a whole lot of other kinds of trouble sometimes. What if saying yes to Jesus saves you out of this only to get you into that? What if saying yes to Jesus will, in some ways, make your life profoundly difficult and complicated? And of course, in our day and age, we don't want to hear that from our pastors. And a lot of us, we, a lot of pastors, we don't want to talk about that because, you know, our job security kind of depends on people coming back. <laughs> we just want our pastors to say sweet things to us. 
tell us, you know, saying yes to the Lord is going to be nonstop, endless joy. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, there's, there's some joy getting involved with God, no doubt about it. Walking with Jesus is absolutely going to result in deep, profound joy that you will not find anywhere else because it's a joy that transcends death and the fear of death. But getting involved with God, there will also be some sorrow. I'm just going to tell you, bluntly. So the message to Mary is something like this. Dear Mary, rejoice and get ready to sorrow. Can you accept that? Can you receive that? Can you handle that? Would you say, oh man, if it's going to entail all of that, no thank you. I'm glad Mary didn't say that. Dear Mary, rejoice and get ready to sorrow. Christianity is filled with all those kinds of paradoxes. And for the Christian, a paradox is not a problem to be solved. It's a mystery to be honored and entered into. So as we meaningfully engage our life with God, we gain the capacity for real sorrow, but at the same time, real authentic joy. And Mary will know both of these. Mary will know deep, rich joy and deep, profound sorrow. Now, ultimately, as Christians, we know that, that joy wins out in the end. Ultimately, joy will have the final say in this whole thing, right? But we're not going to get there cheaply. There's going to be real sorrow involved in your unique journey to following Jesus. Because sorrow and pain are an indispensable part of the process of Christ being formed in me. And if I go into it knowing that, now I don't have to be ashamed when I'm having a hard time. And I don't have to walk into this place and paint a smile on my face. It's okay if I'm having a hard time. And it's okay to share that with somebody I can trust. Because sorrow is not something to be ashamed of. It's an indispensable part of the journey of Christ being formed in me. And to that I can look at Mary and find encouragement. And I can say, here's a human being in whom Christ was formed literally. And what are you and I to be? Men and women in whom Christ is being formed in a metaphorical way. All of us, in a very unique way, we are called to be a kind of God-bearer in the world. And so I'm not looking for some sort of cheap, consumeristic, happy-clappy, easy-cheesy, cotton-candy Christianity. I'd rather be like Mary and live in the tension, live authentically in the tension of real joy and real sorrow and I find it comforting to know that sorrow is just simply part of Christ being formed in me. It's not something abnormal. It belongs to the process. Because if we're going to experience the rich, profound joy of Easter Sunday, we've got to be willing to walk through Good Friday and Holy Saturday. That's our gospel. Our gospel is not Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday. Everybody's happy and has a smile every single week. Our gospel is Good Friday, Holy Saturday, Easter Sunday. It's the grief and pain and sorrow of Good Friday and the feeling of, where is God? Has God abandoned me on Holy Saturday? It's that that actually carves space into our soul that enables us to receive the profound, endless joy of Easter Sunday. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.